0: The title of our, our series this month is The Red Letters. And, and when we look at the red letters, it's almost like someone took a highlighter, you know, to the Word of God. And, you know, began to highlight the exact words that Jesus spoke. That, you know, that, that they, you know, because you, you know the purpose of a highlighter is to draw attention to certain things that you're reading. You know, when you're, you're studying. And a lot of people, even in our Bibles, they'll, they'll highlight things because it brings special attention and it's almost like this is what somebody did, you know, that they took a highlighter to the words of Jesus. And exactly, you know, this exactly, I looked it up, and there exactly what happened. It was in uh, 19, or I'm sorry, 1899, June 1899. It was a man by the name of uh, Louis Kloppish, and, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He was an owner of a Christian magazine. And in 1899, he was doing some work on his, his magazine, and he began to re- read out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 20. And the scripture says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is is shed for you. Mr. Kloppish realized that these were the words that Jesus was speaking as he instituted uh, the observance of the the communion. And he said, wow, these are the words that Jesus spoke himself. And he said, you know, when Jesus says, this is my blood, he says, you know what? He knew that blood was red. And he asked himself, why not put together a red-letter Bible? You know, that the words that Jesus spoke, we could put them in red so it kind of be highlighted so people could understand it. And These are the words that Jesus spoke. He did is he sought counsel from his minister, and he got you know, his, the green light. So what he did is he started to seek out from reputable Bible scholars from, from America and across Europe and asked them to begin to submit passages and words that they felt should be highlighted in red. A couple years later, in 1901, In the November issue of his Christian magazine The Christian Herald, he put out an advertisement For the red letter Bible And he says the first printing he put out 60,000 copies Which immediately sold out He said the presses had to run day and night To just keep up with the demand Of what people were were asking To to really see this new Bible that was out The the red letters Our scripture that we're using for this series is in John 14 uh, Verse 10 He says don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is speaking this. He says, the words I speak are not my own, but my Father who, is, who lives in me does his work through me. Jesus is saying, these are not the words of my own, but these are the words that God is speaking through me. Yes, we are one. He goes, but God is speaking through me to give you these words. In John 7, verse 15 and verse 17, he says, the people were surprised when they heard him. He says, how does he know so much when he has not been trained? As Jesus is ministering, as he's, he's teaching, and he says people are amazed by his teaching. He says, how does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they ask? Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or if it's on my own. He says, if you want to do the will of God, you'll know that these words that I speak come straight from, the, from, from my father. See, the red letters in our Bibles are the words that Jesus spoke to us. As we see that the words were highlighted for us, so we get an understanding that these are the exact words that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ spoke to us that came straight down for the Father to bring direction to our lives, to bring healing, to bring strength, and to bring encouragement. In John chapter 9, verse 1, in the New Living Translation, it says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth, he says, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, they're asking Jesus, he says, why was this man born blind? Was it of his own sins or was it his parents' sins? Tonight I titled this message, Whose Fault Was It? The question the disciples were asking Jesus is, why was this man born blind? You know, because was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? Who was at fault? Who is to blame for this man's you know, blindness? See, when we go through trials when we go through sickness, we go through, you know, just opposition and struggles throughout our lives, it's so easy to begin to blame God for what we're going through. We can blame God. We can blame our upbringing, you know, it's because I was raised this way. This is why this is happening. We could you know, blame ourselves. You know, I'm just so dumb. You know, hit ourselves in the head. Why do I always make these dumb mistakes? We can begin to blame others for, for the things that we're going through and may, what we're going through at the time. But we need to understand the first thing I want to look at is trials are going to be part of our journey. We look at Ecclesiastes because we're going to go through seasons. We're going to go through chapters in our lives. We're just going to go through different seasons, different chapters in our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1, it tells about the different seasons that we'll go through in life. You know, not everyone's going to go through these seasons, but many of us will face many of these different seasons. For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to cry and a time to laugh. A time to grieve and a time to dance. Time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear down, a time to mend, a time to be quiet, and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. It tells us so many seasons, so many chapters in our lives. There are going to be the good ones, and yes, there's going to be some bad ones that we're going to face throughout our lives. There are going to be some struggles. There are going to be some trials along the way. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus is talking about the Beatitudes here, and he's speaking, and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says there's going to be a time of mourning in our life, whether it be the loss of a loved one or loss of something. But there's going to be times in our life that we will have to mourn. But Jesus says, but you will be comforted. He goes on in verse 10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake He tells us that there's going to be times where you're going to be persecuted for doing right, for living right, for living for Jesus. We see it in the time we are living in today that there's so much opposition against the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, he goes on, blessed are you when when they revel against you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake and again jesus says yes there's going to be times where you'll be there's going to be opposition you're going to be mocked they're going to come against you for my name's sake so again jesus is telling us yes there's going to be times where you're going to have some struggles there's going to be some trials there's going to be some opposition along the way in psalm 34 verse 19 it says many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all It tells us that there's going to be some affliction. There's going to be some struggles again. There's going to be some things that we're going to go through in life that, you know, we're not going to enjoy. But God says, you know what, these are things that you're going to go through. And see, as we are on a journey in our walk with God, as we go through this journey, yes, trials will come our way. And when those trials come, again, it's common, so common to start blaming God. You know, God, why did you bring me to you only to allow me to go through this? Why did you bring me to you to only go through this, God? Why, you know, this is all your fault. Not realizing that this journey, God is taking us to something better. That God is saying in this journey, yes, you're going to struggle, you're going to go through some trials, but I'm taking you to something better. Have a great destination for your life. See, the children of Israel didn't understand that was God was bringing them out of bondage, and God was taking them to something better. But what do they do? They find themselves complaining. God was here giving them a picture, kind of giving them a preview of the promised land. He sent out the twelve sprites. He here, I want to give you a preview of what's to come. And instead of them coming back excited, 10 of them came back with a bad report, not realizing God was giving them the land, not understanding, not taking it to heart. They said in Numbers 14, verse 3, why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us to die in battle? God, why are you doing this to us? They began to blame God. It began to become angry with God. Our children, our wives, they're going to be carried up as plunder. It would have been better if we were back in Egypt, back in slavery. See, they weren't really. They just lost focus of how God was taking them into something great, something better. They'd seen opposition. and It's like, oh, God, why are you bringing us to die here? In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul's writing here. He says, we can rejoice too. When we run into problems and trials. This is a New Living Translation. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. God is going to do something in us. He says rejoice. Don't worry. <laughs> when you're going through trials, just rejoice. Why? And he gives a reason why. For we know that they help us to, endu- to develop endurance. That our trials, our problems that we face, it helps to develop endurance in our lives. It's like if somebody decided that they wanted to take up running. You know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a marathon this year. You know what, never ran before. And, you know, they, they say, okay, I'm going to start doing it. Probably about half a block, you're just winded. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my side, my side, my knees. You know, it's like, oh. But you do it again. And you do it again. And what you're doing is you're going a little further, a little further, a little further, and you're building endurance. I had a coworker, he did that. He, he ran the, the LA Marathon years ago. And he just started slowly but surely. And, and the day he did it was it was a horrible day. It was pouring rain. He got blisters in his feet. He had to take a week off from work because his feet were all messed up. But this is what he did. He would train. He would tell me, "I'm mean, you know I'm, I'm just going a little further." He just it, it wasn't something he always did. He just something he took up. He had some friends that were runners, and he said, "You know what? I want to run with them too." And he would do a little bit of time, build a little more time. And he was developing endurance so he could go further and further. Paul says, We know that they help us to to develop endurance. And endurance develops the strength of our character. It begins to develop our character. We're becoming more Christ like. We're becoming more like, you know, the the things that Jesus wants us to be. And that character strengthens our confidence of hope and salvation. Our character begins to strengthen our hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. We won't be disappointed when we continue to endure. Even through the trials, we're enduring. Our character's being strengthened. We're becoming confident of hope, and our hope doesn't lead us to disappointment. But the children of Israel were disappointed because they lost sight of what God was bringing them into. He continues, for we know how dearly God loves us. Paul says this. We know how dearly God loves us because he's given us Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. Second Peter writes this. First Peter, chapter one, verse six. He says, "So be truly glad, because there's wonderful joy ahead." He's telling us there's joy ahead, but even though you must endure many trials for a little while, yes, you're going to face some trials for a while, for a season. But there's wonderful joy ahead. He tells us to endure. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through your faith it's far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on that day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. It's comparing our testings to fire purifying gold. That God is purifying our faith, that he's strengthening us, that he's making us stronger, that God, that we can you know, be in that presence when Jesus Christ is revealed. James says, consider it pure joy. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. When those testings, when those trials come, it's producing perseverance. We're able to go longer. We're able to go stronger. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, that you mature and complete, lacking nothing. We look at Peter, Paul, and James, and they talk about our trials, and they tell us to rejoice in them, to be glad in them, and to count them pure joy. How many really enjoy trials? Amen. Amen. But yet they're telling us, count it joy rejoice be glad there's great joy ahead there's things that god is doing see because the reason that they tell us to rejoice be glad to count it pure joy is because god is developing us he's developing endurance he's strengthening our character he's strengthening our hope of salvation We won't be disappointed. He's strengthening our faith. He's producing perseverance in our lives. And why? Because we are maturing. We're not lacking. What we're doing is we're growing through our trials. I read a quote by a man by the name of J.C. Ryle. He said, by affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons. He says, by affliction, he teaches teaches us many lessons, precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. So if there was no trials, no opposition, no struggles, he said we would never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace. He purifies our affections. He weans us from the world. He makes us long for heaven. talks about how our afflictions begin to do this work in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, we are pressed on every side. Other translations said we are hard pressed on every side by tr- troubles, but we are not crushed. When our trials come and they begin to press us and we feel like we're getting pressed you know, between a you know, rock and a hard place, he says, we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. It's things we just don't understand, but we're not desperate. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. Listen to that. We are never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. We're going to take some hits. We're going to get knocked down a few times, but we're not going to be destroyed. The trials we face will not destroy us because he will not abandon us. David wrote in Psalm 23, familiar scripture, that even though I walk through the darkest valley, that I go through the darkest valley in my life, I will not be afraid because you are close behind with me, that you are there with me, that I'm going through a trial, I'm going through some struggles, you're molding me, you're, you're building me up, you're strengthening me, and you are there with me through it. Your rod, your staff, protect me and comfort me. We know that the Lord goes before us and he says he will never leave us or forsake us. We do not have to be afraid nor discouraged when we go through the battle, through the trials. First Corinthians 1 3. It says, All praise to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and source of all comfort. He is the source of all comfort. Jesus talked about it earlier. He says, Blessed those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says that our father, Paul writes that our Father is the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles. So why? So we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us, be able to encourage them. He says he comforts our troubles, so we can comfort others. When we can share with others that are struggling and going through battle, say, brother, sister, I've been there. I've been through this. God will get you through this. God is going to help you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to encourage you. He's going to get you through this because there's great joy ahead. Don't give up. Keep fighting. I understand what you're going through. We can share what we've gone through with others and let them know, you know what, God will get you through this because I've been there. In the times of trials and struggles, we got to resist envy. Envy is the, the, uh, the desire to have a quality, a possession, or other attribute belonging to someone else. And when we begin to, to, to desire what others have, what happens is we may find ourselves beginning to resent them. In Proverbs 1430, I had to say that slow, 1430, a heart at peace gives life to a body. When our heart's at peace, it gives us life. He says, but envy rots the bones. What it's telling us is that envy begins to destroy us from within. Begins to rot the bones. It begins to eat away at us. It begins to, to cause us to, again, to resent people because we're looking at what God's doing in their lives. We begin to resent with envy. See, envy can enter in when we see others prosper. When you begin to see others prosper, when you see people getting promoted, begin, begin to be used by God. You know, they see that, you know, they got great relationship with others. Envy can enter into our heart. And it's not only here in church, but it could be at our workplace or wherever out through the day, even with family members. You know, you got siblings that, you know, they see things going on in their lives, and it's like envy begins to enter in, we begin to look at what's going on in their lives. That envy entry in, and we start saying, what about me, God? What about me? You know, what about us? You know, why are they are always blessed? Why are they always getting everything? And, and why is everything all good for them? And we begin to look at God and say, why not me, God? You know, we could say, oh, I work harder you know, I've been here longer. I love God more. You know, we begin to look at other people, say, you know, it's their fault that I didn't get promoted. It's their fault that, you know, I wasn't getting used. It's, you know, it's, you, know so you begin to speak bad about them. Oh, you know, they got a new car. It's probably because they don't pay their tithes, amen. And, you know, envy rots the bones. And it begins to just eat away at us because we're looking at what God's doing in other lives, and instead of rejoicing in it, envy enters in and it begins to, Eat away at us, Jesus speaks here in Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day, and for the day and sent them into the vineyards. So he got these guys, found them first thing in the morning, probably six o'clock. They were there. They come work for me. I'll give you a denarius to to work in my fields. About nine o'clock. In the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in, your vi- in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Again, he went about noon, and again about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He did the same thing. He said, hey, you know what? Go work in my vineyard. I'll pay you what is right. About 5 in the afternoon, it's at the end of the day, probably an hour left of work. About 5 in the afternoon, he went and found still others standing around and asked them, why have you been standing here all day, uh, all day long doing nothing? He says, because no one has hired us. He answered, he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. And again, telling him, you know, I'll, I'll give to you what is right. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers together and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones who hired, the ones that just worked for an hour, and, you know, pay them first, and then on to the ones that were here first. So the workers who were hired, you know, at, after, at, at five in the afternoon, the ones that basically worked an hour, they came, he gave them a denarius. Exactly what he told everybody out there, the first guys. Gave them a denarius. So those who came hired first, they're saying, okay, he gave them a denarius. You know, they're thinking, wow, we're going to get more, man, because we've been here all day. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them, he also gave them the same amount, a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, And you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They were upset. They felt that they deserved more. You know, know, they felt like the landowner owed them. You owe us. You know, this ain't fair. We've been here longer. It's hot. You know, we worked harder than all them guys, and you gave them the same amount as you gave us? But he answered him in verse 13. He said, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Didn't you, work, you agree to work for this amount? He says, "Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Don't I have the right to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous?" He's telling him, "Are you guys envious about what I did for them?" You know, you agreed to, to work for this amount. You agreed this is what I was going to get paid. You know, and, and here you're complaining about these guys. Basically, tell them to be, be content because you got exactly what you agreed to. You know, he Tom, don't worry about what I gave the others. I have the right to give what is mine. So don't be envious. Kind of a picture of God. That God has the right to give to what he wants to each and every one of us. We shouldn't allow ourselves to become envious of what God is doing in the lives of others. You know, we don't have to worry about what they're doing. We need to focus in on what God is doing in our lives and what he's about to do in our lives and not worry about what God's doing in other people's lives because you don't know their story. You don't know what they've gone through. You don't know the struggles they may have had, but you just like, oh, my God, they're getting blessed. What about me, God? I've been here longer. You owe me, God. Chuck, Chuck Swindoll said that envy is one of the great enemies of active spirituality. It keeps us from loving our neighbors. He's saying that envy keeps us from loving our neighbors, from functioning with others in community, that we just don't want to work with others anymore because of our envy. It keeps us from acknowledging people's worth. It's like people no longer have worth to us because we're so— because Envy is just rotting us from the inside and we no longer look at the value of the people and it steals contentment from the heart. Envy will steal that contentment that God wants us to have in our heart. So we need to learn to be content. God does not owe us anything. We cannot say, God, you owe me. God doesn't owe us anything. He blesses us because he is a gracious God. He is a gracious God, and he'll bless us accordingly. Paul is speaking to the Philippians, talking about you know, their care for him in, in, in Philippians 4.11. And he says, not that, I ever, not, not, not that I was in need. He says, for, again, he says, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. So important that we learn to be content with what God has blessed us with. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every, every situation, whether it's full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I may have it all. I may have nothing. I may be hungry. I might have a full stomach. But in all these things, I can do everything because God is the one who strengthens me. I remember a time... I shared many years ago, I used, many, many years ago, I used working work in landscaping. And I went for a job interview. Uh, it was at a, at a college. It was a New York college. Beautiful, beautiful place. I did the interview, and man, I thought it went great. I mean, I thought it went great. You know, I had, you know, answered everything. And, and then, even after the interview, the supervisor walked me out. and started showing me around, like, if I had the job. He's like, yeah, you know, this and that. He was like, really, really... You know, I could tell, you know, he really wanted me there because he was telling me, you know, this and that. He me. And usually, you know, when he interviews, okay, thank you, shake the hand and let him go out the door. But he actually walked me out, started showing me around. And I think, "Well, wow, this is great. This is, this, you know, and I'm telling you, I think I got it. It went really well. And then I get the letter. Sorry, we went with somebody else. We'll keep your name for six months, amen. I was so bummed out. I was some bummed out not getting that job. And I'm thinking, God, God, what's going on? How many know what I'm talking about, amen? How many have how been there? It might not be a job. It might be a house, car, something that you really, and you're like, oh, I got this, Lord. God's got this, and, and, and God says no. You're like, God. And God says no, not now, nah, not yet, not yet. You we were going through a hard time financially at that time. We really were. We were going through a hard time, and in my mind, this was going to fix it. This was going to fix it. This job was going to just fix everything. You know, we were struggling financially. But God tells us in Jeremiah, that God says, I know the plans that I have for you. He says, I have good plans for you. He says, not to harm you, He says, but to give you a future and a hope. See, I didn't know the plan that God had for my life. I was only seeing this much. Oh, God, if I get this job, this is going to fix everything. But God says, no. I got so much more for you. I got so much more. And I was bummed at the time. But I had to learn to say, okay, God, you know, whatever else you have, I got to just trust you. See, God has so much more. A lot of times we don't see the big picture. We're just focused on, oh, God, if we just do this one thing, it's going to be okay. But God says, no, not yet, not time. So we got to learn to wait on God. See, our time will come. But again, it's going to be in his timing. It's going to be in his timing. Psalm 40, verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. He turned to me and he heard my cry. As I was waiting patiently for the Lord, he heard my cry, but he says, not yet, not yet. See, as we're waiting patiently on the the Lord, what's happening is he's causing us to mature. He's causing us to grow. He's preparing us for the next season, the next chapter in our lives. See, if I would have had it my way, I would have been working in Santa Clarita, amen. Now that I think about it, I've would have been working in Santa Clarita. I was like, my God, I would not have lasted there. I would have been tired of the drive. But the real blessing came is that I wouldn't have the career I have now. God has blessed me. See, I didn't see it at the time, but God says, no, I got something better for you. I got a career for you. I got something better for you. I enjoy what I do, and it's all because God had blessed me. God said, No. Not now, not yet. It's not time. Had to grow. Had to mature a little bit more. Had to go through some things. But God said, okay, now I'm opening this door for you. We need to understand that when we go through struggles, don't let envy come in. we we'll begin to look at, oh, I heard this brother got a good job and this sister got a good job. Or, you know, they got a house, they got a car, they got all these things. God's saying, not yet, not yet. Just be patient. A content heart causes us to rejoice for others. their promotion, their blessings, the life they're living. When we're content, we can begin to rejoice for others. We can begin to look at others and say, God is good, brother. God has blessed you. Because that envy is gone. It's no longer eaten away at us. But we're able to rejoice in the blessings that God is doing in others' lives. <clears throat> That's the thing you want to look at is God will be glorified. Again, we go back to the story in John chapter 9. It says that Jesus came across a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Jesus... Why was he born blind? Was it because of his sins or was it because of his parents' sins? And Jesus was asked, whose fault was it? Jesus responded to their question in John chapter 9, verse 3. He says, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Jesus answered, This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. That's the NLT and the NIV. So the works of God. Might be displayed in him. The Living Bible says, but to demonstrate the power of God. The King James says, but the works of God should be made manifest in him. See, Jesus was asked whose fault it was. It wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sins. But this happened so the miracle working power of God could be seen working through him. A manifestation of his goodness and his miracle working power would bring healing to this man's life. And we look at the story in, in, in verses 6 and 7. It says how Jesus spit in the ground, made mud, put the mud in his eyes, began, and he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. And he says that he wa- washed in the pool, and he says he came back with his sight, that he came back seeing See, this man was blind from the day he was born. He was blind from the day he was born, so on this appointed day, the Lord Jesus Christ could heal him and God would receive all the glory. When they asked whose fault was it, it was not his parents, not his, but that God would be glorified. Isaiah says, I am the Lord. This is my name. And I will not give glory to anyone else. I will not share my praise with carved idols. All praise goes to God and no one else. First Peter says, 3, verse 15, he says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who speaks for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He says, Be ready always to give an answer. Be ready always to give testimony of the joy that's in your life. Be ready always to give testimony of what God has done in your life. People ask you, what, what's, what's going on with you? It's Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus is working through me. Jesus has done a miracle in my life that we can be ready to testify. He says, be ready always. We continue in the story in John chapter 9, and you can read, read, read the rest of it. But again, it says that you know people began to come out, and, just, and this is a blind beggar. And, you know, and, and everybody says, no, they think it is him. And, no, maybe it's not him. Maybe it looks like him. And he says, no, it's me. It's me. I'm the one. He says, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they call Jesus. And what he does is he begins to testify of what Jesus did, how Jesus did a miracle. He says that they took him to the Pharisees pharisees are you know debating you know how, how can he do this on the sabbath the other saying well how can a sinner do these miraculous things and they can, they begin to question this man the pharisees question him and they ask them the question what's your opinion of this man jesus they're asking what's your opinion of this man jesus he goes i think he's a prophet i really think he's a prophet again they refuse to believe him and you know believe that he was blind so they call his parents and tell his parents hey you know what is this your son? Is he the one that was born blind? Was he born blind? And if he is, how can he see now? And he says, his parents replied, we know this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, but we don't know how he sees or how he got healed. And this is what his parents said. He says, ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. They're like, whoa, I washed my hands of this boy, you know, <laughs> because of fear that they were going to get kicked out. But, he, you know, they weren't willing to give glory to God. They weren't willing to testify. <laughs> Their own son, they're saying, oh, "I don't know what's going on with him." You go, go ask him; he's old enough. They weren't willing to give glory to God, so they just keep going back and forth, and you know, and they begin to tell him, "You know, we think this Jesus is a sinner," and he responds, "I don't know whether he's a sinner or not, but I know this: I was blind, and now I can see. I was blind, but now I can see." And he gets frustrated with them because they keep questioning him. He says, Why do you keep asking me the same questions? I told you already. What is it? You want to become one of his disciples? And he says that they got upset with him. He says, You know what? He tells them, even since the beginning of time, there's no one that's been born blind that received their sight. If this man were from God, how could it be done? And they begin to tell him, You're nothing but a sinner. You know, you're trying to teach us, and they threw him out of the synagogue. You know, prior to that, they're asking him his opinion. So, what do you think? And now I would say, you're nothing but a sinner, get out of here. Why? Because this man began to just began to testify of who Jesus was. He began to tell them about Jesus, and they didn't hear what they wanted. They, what they were hearing is they were hearing the truth about Jesus and it was piercing their hearts, so they threw him out. I shared the story of my son. He was born with some serious health issues when he was from birth. I'd say about the first maybe month of his life, he was in NICU. Serious problems. He had a paralyzed vocal cord that was blocking his airway, and so he couldn't breathe. So he was like <gasps> when he was born. So they put him on a they actually put a trach in his throat. So for you know for for a while he was he was like that. And I wasn't saved at the time. I wasn't serving God, but I really believe God used that to draw me to Him. He really did, because I saw the faith my wife had. and She was praying and trusting God and believing God, and all I was doing was just drowning my sorrows. Depressed and just drinking and just trying to, you know, find joy. And then I was depressed. Finally came to Jesus. Finally gave my life to Jesus. But that was a tough time. Because even after I came to Jesus, he was still sick. He was still struggling. He was still going through these issues. But during that time, I was learning how to pray. I was learning how to fast. I was learning how to believe God for for a miracle. And I just, you know, as I was starting to grow, and yes, he was sick, but I was just trusting God. Then what happened was I heard a brother was saved for a long time. I, I, I think he might have been, been at a Bible study. And he wasn't directing this at me. He was just saying in general. And, then, you, know, I, you know, I'm a brand new, new convert. He's been saved a number of years. And he made this comment, in, the, in I believe it was at a Bible study. He says, if you're sick, then there's sin in your life. And man, that messed me up. It messed me up. Because I was doing good. I was, man, I was trying just to live right for God. And, you know, and it began to bring doubt. Because he said, if you're in sin, I mean, if you're sick, then you're in sin. Started to think, like, well, who sinned? You know, what am I doing wrong? God, you know, is it my wife? Is it her fault? You know, is it where really cursed? Why, God? And it messed me up. It really did. Because I trusted this man. And, 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 and he, and he, but he made that comment. But what happened was I began to read the red letters of Jesus Christ. I began to read the word of God in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Jesus was walking along. He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? Jesus says it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so that the power of God could be seen through him. I read that, and it began to bring hope. It began to bring encouragement. It began to change the way I prayed over my son. I was like, God, I pray for a manifestation of Your miracle-working power over my son, that You would be receive the glory. My son was in and out of the hospital. So many surgeries he had, and every so often they would do is they would stick a camera in to look at his vocal cords. They would knock him out and put him in. And when they were there, and we we're praying, I'm praying for his vocal cords. I'm praying for his vocal cords. God, cause him to move. Me and Tina, were both praying for that. And one day we're there and you might never hear a doctor go, hmm, hmm. And I'm like, what's going on? He goes, it's moving. He goes, He's cured. You know, he's healed. He's healed. You ever hear a doctor do that? It's like, they don't get it. It goes beyond their understanding. But we understand that it's the power of God and his miracle working power. The platform can come up. I'll share this last story. My sons, my sons get mad because I say their names, so I can't say their names no more. But I'll say my youngest son, Amen. (laughs) I didn't say his name. Praise the Lord. One night, it was probably about 2005. He was about 16, 17 years old. Me and my wife were in the room. We're just in our room, and he walks into our room. He goes, "I just want to let you know that when I turn 18, I'm moving out, and I'm not coming to church anymore. Okay? Praise the Lord." You know, what do you want me to do, panic? And, you know, it's just praise God. And we, my wife kind of laughed at each other, like, yeah, he's going to move out. <laughs> you yeah. know. But just, we just said, okay. You know, we just began to pray for him. You know, pray that God God would touch him. So one night he was playing dodgeball. And somebody got the ball. He was probably about this close to my son and just threw it. And hit him square in the eye. Square in the eye. Lost vision in his eye called me up and said, Dad, I can't see. I can't see. And I can tell, because he's not very emotional, but he was in a panic. So we picked him up, my wife took him to emergency, and they said it was called, what it was is it burst the vessels behind his retina and just just burst, it's kind of like macular degeneration. He said he's never gonna see that again. So we and my wife, we went and got, we got three different opinions my wife said, okay, so what are we gonna do? We're gonna do surgery, how are we gonna do this? He goes, not, he's not gonna see out of that eye. He's not gonna see out of that eye again. We just began to pray, believe God. He said it was like looking through a shattered glass That he was just all you see was just shattered glass out of, that, out of that eye. But what happened was during that time, about 2006, God was doing something here in the school. God was touching our kids. God was bringing deliverance, God was bringing healing. God was saving our kids. And I remember during that time, my son gave his life to Jesus. He said, I'll never give my life to Jesus. I'll never come to church. He gave his life to Jesus. His fellow students, his teachers began to pray for him. Me and my wife were praying. We had others helping us pray. So we went, took him on a follow-up visit, and he did the eye chart. And he's going through the eye chart. And all of a sudden, I hear, hmm. Asked my son, "Can you see?" He goes, "Yeah, I can see." And we're like, "Oh my God!" And the doctor goes, "He's cured." And I go, "No, he's healed." But yes, it took him it took him a while to move out. Amen. But I praise God because he's married. He has two beautiful kids. God has been blessing his life just lately, man. God has been just pouring blessing upon blessing upon his life, but he knows where it all comes from. He knows where it came from, and he can testify that I once was blind, but I now can see. See, the trial that I went with my first son, and the struggles, and the pains, and the heartache, and the tears that I went through, this time it was like, God, I know you can do a miracle. I know you can heal him because God was developing me. He was producing endurance, you know, perseverance, and He was strengthening our faith. The question is, whose fault was it? Jesus said it was nobody's fault, and so God can work in your life, and He would get all the glory. Let's bow our heads tonight.